0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. And we turn the page into September here. I guess summer is sort of unofficially over, officially over, depending on your uh, sensibilities here. But, uh, you know, we're into the final third of the year here. And NFL is just a few days away here from the start of the regular season. Bills, Rams, and a lot's happening across the space. Yeah,
1: well, before we get to the NFL regular season, we've got the U.S. Open and Serena's amazing run, at least so far. And so it's been fun to watch that and see where that goes over the next couple of
0: weeks. And so a lot to unpack here uh, as we, had, again, turn the page into September here. ticketing and Company SeatGeek had a big fundraise coming off uh, the demise of their prior proposed SPAC merger. We've got some interesting news in the world of Italian soccer and AC Milan bringing on some very uh, high profile American investors, Uh, CFP expansion, the college football playoff, uh, once sort of left for dead, now back on the table. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Tony Knopp from Ticket Manager, you know, long one of the most uh, influential figures in the ticketing space. We're going to have a conversation with Tony about uh, a lot of trends and developments in that space. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Tony Knopp, co-founder and chief executive of Ticket Manager. The California-based company has forged a leadership position in both the ticketing and technology industries, forming a software as a service entity that works with hundreds of major companies to help manage their live event ticket inventories. A growing array of teams also work with Ticket Manager on various ticketing and loyalty initiatives. And most recently, Ticket Manager struck a large scale partnership with National Football League's Philadelphia Eagles, in which the team's corporate and premium clients will gain additional tools to manage their tickets and monitor usage, marking the first deal of its type in the league. Prior to forming Ticket Manager in 2007, Knopp worked with several major brands in the sports and entertainment industry, including StubHub and the Anschutz Entertainment Group, and previously was a national level volleyball player. And in addition to his ticket manager duties, Knopp also maintains a popular weekly content series, The Three Things I Learned in SAS, Sports, Tech, and Live Events. Tony, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. So let's uh, start with the origin story here. You've been at StubHub. You've been at AEG. You've been doing some things, working your way up the ladder. What was that sort of impetus or spark to say, hey, I want to break out on my own. I've got this idea and do, I want
2: to do my own thing. I joke often. I'm getting older, so I don't know if it, how relevant it is for so many. But I'm part of the Jerry Maguire generation, so that movie <laughs> came out when I was in my formative years, the end of high school, early college, and decided that uh, hey, I, I want to work in what I what I love, which is you know sports and live events. It's it's what I enjoy. So due to that, my first job out of college, I couldn't get a job, so I was selling advertisements in a in the supermarket. You know, when you're walking through the supermarket and they have the ads on the floor and the coupon machines, I did that for about six months, and then I took a uh, a sink or swim sales job at the LA Dodgers uh, back in the when they were at the bottom of the, of the NL West in 2001, 2002. I ended up at, at StubHub. I'll skip a lot of the story as to how I ended up there. I, I ended up there because of the NHL lockout. Thank goodness that happened. At the time, it felt like a horrible thing, the NHL lockout. It turned out it, it really set my career you know, on the path that it's on. You know? So you know, it's the whole we'll see story. And uh, when I was at StubHub, my job was to go into corporations. We can go into more detail on that as, as there's interest. My job was to go into companies and have them buy more stuff through StubHub as opposed to using season tickets and the like. And it was the same conversation every time. I'd walk into these big brands, these big companies. I'll give an example CPS, I walked into their chief administrative officer's office in New York, big palatial office. And I'd say, you know, we, we have a great way for you to pick up more tickets for your customers, especially for events that are hard to get tickets to. And he opened his drawer up and he had stacks and stacks of New York Mets tickets. And he said, Tony, I can wallpaper my office in New York Mets tickets at the end of every year. If you can figure out how I can stop from doing that, I'll buy whatever you want on StubHub. And that was the light bulb moment. We looked at that and just said, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion when you talk with startups and entrepreneurship about, you know, is there a market that That you just see an end to where it currently is. And we really sat down and brainstormed and worked with the investors on how we were going to build a business. The one conclusion that we always came to was the way it currently is being done cannot continue. So somebody has to win this market and find a better way. Why not us? So that was the inception story. I look back on it now and laugh a little bit about how we had the bravery to do it. I'm not sure I'd have that bravery now. But for me, it was just the... Uh, I, I said the same thing over and over again. I was 27 at the time. And I said, look, if I'm going to end up selling software in an office somewhere, in a cubicle somewhere you know, later in my life, I don't want to be looking out the window and wondering what would have happened if I asked the girl to dance. right? So, so I got to give it a shot. And uh, so I, I guess just like youthful ignorance and a little bit of fear and, and off we went.
1: That's great, Tony. Well, fast forward to today. Can you share a little bit about the business model and and more broadly, the current business of Ticket Manager for, for listeners that may be
2: less familiar with what you do? Absolutely. So to make it as simple as possible, we help companies get the absolute most out of their investment in live events. And what that means is we help them get their best tickets to their right customers. And we help them understand what the value is when they do that. Now, businesses have a lot of different measurement tools, a lot of different enterprise technologies they use. We bring that all together to make it easier for a company to really leverage live events, to leverage the Philadelphia Eagles so that their brand can benefit from what's happening on the field and around the field, and they're tied to something that people love. And so we handle end-to-end live event management. We help companies understand what tickets they have, who they should be made available to, who has been going, who should be going. If there's nobody going, how to resell them and get as much money as they can for those so they can reinvest in things that make sense. We give them ROI reports. We keep them compliant for tax and audit. And we even with the teams and leagues help with press credentialing, with guest credentialing and guest passes and registration. So what we're really trying to do is make it so that any company says, I really believe the future of marketing is and aligning my brand with this live event. We want to give them all of the tools so that they can go in and be successful right away, and they can be successful right away because they're leveraging the best practices from 600 companies around the globe that have been doing this for years and just have these mountains of data. So, so that's what our business is. We're, we're, you know, Chris, we're, we're not that smart. We say that pretty regularly. We just have a lot of customers who are that smart, and so we just sit down, shut up, and listen as to what their pain is, and then we bring those technologies together to help them solve that. So within
0: all of that, there's obviously been a lot of changes in, in live event attendance over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. How have you seen usage of uh, corporate tickets change over this period, and how are you yeah. trying to align
2: to respond? So I'm going to be super transparent about it in the hopes that it'll help others who run into a situation like this. When the pandemic hit in March of 2020, we thought that this was going to be really, really awful for us. We had an emergency board meeting with our, with our board and with our, I was up all night with the finance team for the next week, modeling out eight different models as to what would happen to our business, right? Under the assumption that maybe there won't be live events for a few weeks, maybe there won't be live events for a few months, maybe there won't be live events for a year plus. We had anticipated all the way up to about a 50% non-renewal rate with our customers. And you know, we we built our, our financial plans around those eight different scenarios. None of those scenarios happened. None of the eight. We went over eight on it. We actually saw a renewal rate that was the same as it was prior to COVID, as these companies were looking at it through the long lens of, no, these are assets that we want. And we know that we have value with these assets, with the season tickets and the suites that we've had for years because of the position we have with them. And we want to make sure that we're getting the most out of it. So, you know, as far as our business goes. It changed a little bit about how we were looking at it, but to answer your question about the attendees on the corporate side, it's still lagging a lot more than most people would believe. We have a lot of customers who they're not back in the office. and You might not align that with ticket use, but it actually is because there's a number of people who, for example, commute into Boston. and When they're in the city, it's easy for them to catch a Red Sox game that night, but now they're not in the city. They're 45 minutes out. They're an hour out. They're two hours out. So are the customers. It's not an easy walk to the game. So the usage rates have dropped with COVID. Obviously, you know, there's always been haves and have-nots. That The premium events always get attended. Uh, people will go way out of their way to do it. That's why we all work in the industry working, because we love this. But um, we've definitely seen that change with, with companies figuring out a way to better understand what it looks like now to invite guests to events versus what it was three years ago because they're just not as willing to go.
1: When you launched this business, it sounds like there was no company really providing the service that you were creating or contemplating. Again, fast forward to today, who would you consider your competition? Are there other entities out there that are now doing a similar thing yeah. and that you run into head-to-head with when you're out in the marketplace?
2: Of course. So in 2007, when we launched it, there were businesses doing this. Uh, Razor Gator was doing it, David Lord and his team. Uh, but what they were doing is they were doing enterprise technology. So they were coming into a business and saying, okay, Bank of America, we're gonna build a technology specifically for you. Uh, that's systems integration in our space, right? If you want to go hire somebody to build something specifically for you, you hire a systems integrator and you pay them hourly, and then you pay them to maintain the, the technology. And there have been a number of companies who have tried this and, and they're doing it. Now, now here's what's interesting about our space. Entering a ticket management space and saying, Hey, we'll help you manage your your tickets, especially for a smaller business, is not that difficult to do. And it's not that difficult to get up to 15 to 20 customers when you're doing it, but then it breaks because you're trying to offer the kind of service that you get with a sports marketing agency and you're trying to be as customized as possible, but you're just not big enough to do it. So the difference for us and what's crossed the chasm between 2007 and now is we really sat down and said, Hey, the only way for this to work at scale. Is we've got to invest in it significantly. We've got to raise a significant amount of money, north of $10 million. And we have to build a technology that's so configurable that it can be used by hundreds of different companies in hundreds of different ways. You have to be able to configure the workflows because it always sounds easy to put these things together. But then you start talking to businesses and they're all very unique in how they do things. So that's what we've seen over the last... And what's built our lead in the 15 years that we've done this is just that we were the only ones that were really willing to cross that chasm to say that, hey, we're willing to invest $15, 20000000 million into this while losing that much money because we believe that coming out the other side, we're going to have the kinds of tools that are going to check all of the boxes for our customers. And so we occasionally run into you know some sports marketing agencies that are trying to do this or some ticket brokers that are trying to get in the game. And it's the old Warren Buffett quote, you know the innovators, the imitators, and the idiots. Um, I think we're on the imitators phase now, but it's just difficult to imitate, right? It's difficult to imitate when you don't have the complexity necessary to do it. I mean, if you're going to support customers with that wider range of what they have need for, you have to have thirty or forty customer support reps. You have to have, you know, a customer service or customer uh, success management team of of ten people plus you have to have people on call. And uh, we, just, we just haven't seen that out there right now. So the honest answer is you know, our, our number one competitor is it's Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's actually the competitor for us and for the teams. It, it's always the same story when we go into customers and they say, hey, I don't think I'm getting what I want out of these tickets. It's because they're holding them too tight or they don't offer them to enough people or you know, we've got all the stories. CEO bottom because she or he you know, just want to take their kids and then that CEO is not here anymore. So that's what we're seeing. And it's creating this, this really interesting transition in corporate sports that we've seen over the last couple of years as luxury suites are kind of falling out of favor, as customers who are oversold are starting to struggle. And uh, we're, really, we're really gearing up for that with our, with our different stacks. I mentioned
0: the Eagles deal before. Why is that going to be important for you? And, and
2: how do you see that potentially leading to other business going forward? Absolutely. So the Eagles deal is the third in what we call our lifeguard deals. Uh, LAFC was first, the Texas Rangers second, the Eagles are, are third. Six more will be announced in the next six weeks, all just as big and just as, as fantastic as the Eagles. But I can't tip my hat to the Eagles enough. They're changing the game. Was, There's was a lot of people that were afraid of what we're doing there. So here's what we're doing with the Eagles that's so different. We're enabling them to proactively address TBUs with their partners. We're helping them go to their partners and say, here's what you're looking at for the next month. Not backwards, but forward. Here and here are the tools we can use, whether you use Ticket Manager or not, to get you to be more successful with that inventory. And part of that is corporate resale, which is new. right? Teams have thought corporate resale for quite a long time. Now teams are starting to understand that we're saying, look, we're not a ticket broker. We, we are not interested in corporate resale. In fact, if your customers don't use their tickets, then I don't have anybody to sell to, because they're not going to renew with you, and then they don't need a ticket management software. So we're in the boat together here. We really need them to get value out of this, and part of that is corporate resale, and we can use that for a positive. We can have them use that corporate resale and put those that funds back on file with the team to spend on other things later, because that's what the companies want to do. You know, we often make a joke that uh, if you are a sponsorship head at a major brand, let's say Mastercard is a customer of ours, and your budget is ten million dollars. And you come back at the end of the year and you give back the CFO $2 million. What's your budget going to be for next year? It's going to be $8 million, right? We would rather keep that money so that they can reinvest it in the Eagles, reinvest it in the NFL, and continue to build on the live events. And uh, I mean, look, it's it's been the tidal wave we anticipated. Once they announced it, every team has called us in every league. We've already had a number of deals lined up. And we just think that this is the future. That... You know, the ability to give these companies flexibility to get the absolute most about what they're doing, taking what the Eagles are doing and actually integrating it into the companies so that if you work there, you're getting it in your inbox. You're getting it, you know, on your phone. You don't have to go out of your way to find those tickets. That that's the future for us. And that's what we're excited about.
1: We talked earlier a little bit about the pandemic and some of the impacts that had on the live event space. We now may be heading into a recession. It seems to me that sometimes One of the first things people cut in a recession is their hospitality and their tickets. How do you think that will all net out if we do head into a downturn? And how does that specifically affect your business?
2: I think uh, on a broad scale, and then I'll talk about our business. On a broad scale, I think it's going to be a real problem. Um, And here's why. I think that there's a lot of assumptions from especially the next generation of my generation that's going through sports business that this has just kind of always been the way it is. But I think the three of us know that hospitality and premium hospitality wasn't as prevalent as it is now all the way up until about 1997, 1996, right? Miami Heat kind of brought it to the, to the forefront when they built a new arena you know, within 30 years of building their, their last one. And what happens in those, and we've, we've elaborated on this in a couple of pieces, what happens in those cir- circumstances is you bring in these hired guns whose job is to squeeze as much money out of the market as possible. And that's great, but they're not focused on long-term value of customer. And they don't need to be because that's how the sports business is. You know, I come in on the VP of sales for a new building. I'm not going to be there longer than 10 years. I kind of don't care about the next renewal cycle. But you get into that next renewal cycle, and people are starting to say, well, I was oversold. I bought more than I should have. I'd like to downgrade, or I'd like to walk away. If you couple that with they're getting pressure from the finance team saying, listen, inflation is really impacting our business, regardless of whether we go into an economic recession in the market sense. Inflation is crushing businesses currently and it's crushing their, bon- their uh, budgets currently, as is. So they're doing exactly what you elaborated on, which is a perfect way of saying it. The first thing they do is come for live events. And what they don't realize is they, they look at it and they say, I can either cut the sweep with, you know, let's name the team with the, with the isotopes, or I can cut Jack and Jill. And anybody who hears that says, You cut the sweep. Obviously, you don't cut people. But what they don't realize is, if you cut the suite, you're going to cut Jack and Jill and Mary and Frank, and that's what we want to put numbers to: is that hey, these are valuable and necessary business amenities that you have that are differentiating you from your competitors. The vast majority of our customers are in commoditized businesses, where the difference between a Verizon or an AT&T or the difference between a Cooley law firm and a Latham and Watkins is not that you know it's not that easy to see from somebody from the outside, and so. I think you're totally correct that I think what a recession is going to do to the market for premium and luxury sales is it's going to hurt it pretty significantly. And I think teams are going to learn that they need to go back through and resegment their customers and understand how to sell to them. And you're going to continue to see, you know, buildings that have smaller luxury suites or more group spaces. For our business, we've always been counter cyclical. We were founded in 2007, so we went through the 2008 downturn. Those are wonderful conversations for us. Wells Fargo, a large customer of ours, has been for north of a decade. They bought Wakovia during the, during the financial crisis. And uh, the Wakovia team called us this is how we ended up with Wells Fargo and they said, "Hey, we're going to get all of our inventory to cut 26,000 tickets in the Northeast region, because Wells Fargo says it's redundant. We have one year to prove that there's value here." And they brought us in. We proved a ton of value. Now, Wells Fargo as an enterprise is a customer. So we have a lot of those conversations on the team side and on the company side, which really helps understand that, hey, you know, yes, there's some gluttony in live events like anything else. But there's also some discipline spending that's really driving revenue. And uh, I think and believe, I should say that stronger. I know that when you put that kind of discipline against your live event spend and you compare it to your other marketing spend, the live event spend is the best spend you're doing. And when you have those resources that you're tied to it, I think companies are starting to see, especially the smart ones, that this is a huge competitive advantage for them, especially when other people start giving stuff up.
0: Over the last year or two, there's been a ton of uh, venture money moving into live event and and ticketing business. You've obviously got your own investors here. And as we're having this conversation, SeatGeek has just brought in a ton of money as well. Does that sort of, um, if you could speak to your investor, your own investor base and does all this money sort of flooding into live event and the live event business, does that sort of change how you sort of think about the investment opportunities surrounding Ticket Manager?
2: It's yes, it's that's a terrific question. It's been very interesting because when you read about what Chris mentioned earlier about an economic recession, this is true across a lot of industries where we're seeing valuations change and you're seeing the, the multiples on those valuation changes. For example, you know, the people who did the SeatGeek deal are the same ones that were involved in the stack, right? They obviously very much believe in that business and just looked at it and said, maybe this isn't the time to go public right now, right? General sentiment in the market, but we're still wildly interested in the business, so we're going to write a $238 million check, which is significant. What's interesting about the market right now, especially in live events, is one, people see that you've almost had this oversaturation digitally now, and it's moving back to live events, right? Where there's an opportunity where people are continuing to pay for more experiences, specifically the next generation, right? Gen Z loves to go to festivals. They love to go to games. They love to do things together as a group. And so a lot of investors see that the other thing that's really interesting which is which has been great for our industry is that you know there, there's always wild growth investments in things like food delivery and you know WeWork and things of that nature but um, right now the focus by most investors and you know we invest in some businesses too and we've bought a few companies ourselves is in discipline right and and live events are, are pretty disciplined right they're they're pretty easy to forecast and so what we've been really what we've just been empowered by and excited about is that over the last you know year all the discipline that we've had in our business and that, that you know, the businesses that we're in and around is starting to really be rewarded. And I think you're going to continue to see more venture money flow into sports technology and into live events and live events in the live event market, just because as you know, you all talk to them on your podcast and listen to it all the time. There are a lot of businesses that are still stuck in the past, and they need to be disrupted by technology that already exists. One of the things that we talk about regularly here, and I, I would encourage the listeners is, you know, Steve Jobs talked about this all the time, is um, you know the great artists steal, right? Better to be a pirate than to join the Navy was Jobs' quote. And he doesn't mean go steal your competitor's stuff. Obviously, nobody wants to live that life. You want to live a life of integrity. But what you're looking at is you're saying, okay, here's a market that hasn't been disrupted yet. Here's technology that already exists that we can bring into this market, right? And that's how we looked at this market. We said, look, CRM technology is becoming way more prevalent. Uh, you know, Salesforce kind of became prominent in 2000, 2001. So 2007, we started along the way. It's not a coincidence that we started when we did You know, we tell people all the time, you know, we all have, you know, these phones in our hands, right? Whether it's an iPhone or a Samsung. And if I came to you and I said, hi, Eric, hi, Chris, here's a, here's a device that's going to know where you go all the time. It's going to know who you're talking to. It's going to know what you buy and it's going to know, you know where you go on the web. You would probably call the police, <laughs> but they've offered you so much convenience in exchange for that data that now you have a device where you can reach all of your friends and cohorts at the same time. You can get Google Maps when you need them or Apple Maps. You can run your business off of it that you're saying, OK, there's so much convenience here. I'm willing to pay for it and give you that information. That's how we looked at this business. We said, listen, the reason companies haven't had an answer for this is the technology hasn't existed. The iPhone came out the year that we launched our business and we looked at it in the same way. We said, if we can make it so convenient for companies to use their live events and drive ROI out of it, then we might be able to grow something here. And I think that's the blueprint for the businesses that are raising capital right now and how they're going to be successful.
1: So it's been about... Fifteen years, Tony, since you launched the business, and and obviously it's not been a short term, you know, couple of years and out kind of thing. And you've built an, a, a great business. How are you thinking about a potential exit from a timeline standpoint? And then maybe as a follow up to that, when you think about the kinds of companies that would be interested in a ticket manager, is it ticketing and event companies? Is it sports marketing companies? Is it software companies? Kind of how do you think about that? Given I, I know you're spending most of your time running it. Day-to-day, but I'm sure you give a, a couple of minutes of thought here and there to what the exit might be.
2: More than a couple of minutes. It's a, it's a constant conversation. So it's a really good question, especially for the listeners as they understand how this grows. Just because I didn't understand when I got into the market how this works. Generally, as you're raising rounds, there's some kind of exit that's involved in the rounds, especially when you get past a series A. So a lot of times people will look at you know, a, a capital raise and think, well, when is the founder going to sell the business? Just know that at every level they're selling part of the business, right? Because the new investors want to keep them motivated, but they also want to, in, in any liquidity event, any founder is going to take a couple of chips off the table. So when you look at, a cust- at somebody who's been through a series A, B, C, you know, usually at the series A, there's a little bit of money that comes off. By series B, usually founders become millionaires, right? If that's where you say, okay, well, we're going to give you enough money so that we can buy some of the stake, but we want to keep you interested. And then at series C, they continue to take money off the table. So we've had a few liquidity events here. We did in 2015, we did our series B. In 2017, we had 4 different offers to buy the business. 2018, we had 2 more. 2019, we exited the 2 co-founders. They sold their shares out. And then 2020, 2021, I mean, you know, there's, there's always somebody calling, right? The best piece of advice I got, and uh, it's actually turned out to be true, which is terrifying, is that uh, the day you sell your business is the day you don't want it, right? So the better business goes, the more calls you get. And if you're doing a good job, which I believe we are, and, and we're very blessed and thank you that, thankful that we are, you know, we're getting calls. I probably get 8 to 10 calls a week with somebody trying to buy our company. It's very regular. You can hire bankers to help you deal with this so you don't have to take those first, call, those first calls. But I talk to the banker every couple of days about what's happening. Uh, the way I look at it is this really simply. To answer the question directly, I love this job. I did not intend to be in it for 15 years. I didn't intend for it to grow to the size it has. But I just looked at, the, at, at where we are right now and where the market is going right now. And I'm so excited about it that um, we're currently having conversations with people. It would have to be a deal that would enable us to continue to, to run with it and get more upside from it. And the companies that call us are very regularly for the listeners. There's there's either uh, private equity funds that are trying to take our current investors and take the baton from them, and say, hey, here's your five times return. We believe this is going to grow five more times, so we're willing to buy it. Obviously, there's a lot of those in the sports world now who are doing a lot of those deals. And then the strategics that we talk to are either uh, technology businesses that run, you know, CRM compliance technology or live event businesses who look at us and say, you know, one of the things that's the most Differentiated about us is you know you can build an enterprise software and make it great. Selling it is very difficult. You know we have 600 plus customers. We have five of the seven college football playoff games. We have you know every large university, every large event. We have you know the vast majority of the Fortune 100. We have 85% active market share, but only 5% of market share right now. So that's how we're looking at it right now. Is you know we just think that the next three years are going to be such explosive growth as this becomes the way that uh, we're looking for somebody that would be involved in that. As you pursue all of that, there's a lot of folks sort of thinking about ticketing from a
0: different way, particularly as it relates to technology, um, using things like NFT and blockchain and so forth. Are you excited about any of that or anything that particularly catching your eye in terms
2: of the redefinition of what a ticket is? I think I could babble for 30 minutes about distributed databases, NFTs, and how that applies to and how the blockchain applies to tickets and, and all of my thoughts on it. I don't want to bore anybody with that. So I will answer the question directly with, with what I think would, people would find interesting. I think, you know, the difficulties with NFTs and ticketing is that there is still a singular entry point that has that singular database, right? So you're eventually going to have to come through a door. And what's, what's so important about the question you just asked is that's why we addressed the market we did the way we did. The one thing about ticketing that's so wildly unique is unlike many other marketplaces, The person who eventually attends the event has to enter through somebody's technology, right? Ticketmaster is going to scan you, or SeatGeek is going to scan you, or Tickets.com is going to scan you. So, ticketing up until now has kind of lived in this world where it's we print the ticket and then we don't know where it goes. And now, all these primary ticketers are trying to say, Well, we want to track it throughout the whole process so I know where it goes. And they're kind of like, they're kind of trying to balance the line between convenience and like draconian measures of saying, well, you cannot forward it unless you do it in the way we tell you to, as opposed to how can we make this so convenient that Chris wants to forward it to Eric and tell us who we forwarded it to. That's where we have the partnership. We have a Ticketmaster. What the blockchain and what, what NFTs do is enables an easier way for us to track the process once it leaves the ecosystem, right? Because you're never going to be in a vacuum where one primary ticket holder is going to have all of the economics that go around. It's actually going the other direction. Where there's a lot of different resellers out there. There's Brad at GameTime, who I grew up with. Brad and I played volleyball the other in high school. There's SeatGeek and Rust. There's Ticketmaster. There's all these different companies that are out there. And what, the, what NFTs and blockchain enables you to do, it enables to say, hey, look, we are eventually going to scan that ticket when it comes back to the building. But we want to know what's happened to it in its life cycle once it's left our, our universe, right? And that's what those technologies are going to enable you to do and eliminate fraud at the same time. Is the NFL saying, "Okay, look, we have our deal with Ticketmaster. They are our, our official reseller, but SeatGeek and, and StubHub can play in this game as long as we can get the data, understand the entire life cycle of the tickets so we can understand our customer base better." And then eventually as as we all know, you know, fanatics or somebody's going to get involved to continue to leverage that. And I personally believe that the live events experience is going to look a lot more like what's happening in casinos, right? Where You know, it's not necessarily just about how do I get you in the building. It's how do I understand how to get you in the building? How do I get you to, you know, either buy merchandise for your kids, gamble if you're not there with your kids, you know, F and B because that's what you're there for. It's just this this holistic approach to you know economics that we've seen happen in Vegas and in China and in different places where that's a very common thing. It's a very long answer for you, but blockchain enables you and NFTs enable you to integrate into that entire life cycle.
1: Tony, as you look at the next year, what are the top you know, one or two things you really think you need to get done? What are your top priorities as you
2: look forward? For us as a business, talent is always a top priority, and talent changes. So uh, you know, that answer, as cliche it is, is going to be the answer every year. It's how are we maturing? How are we evolving with the current working universe, right? It's very different recruiting people now than it was 15 years ago, as we all know. And how people work, and integrating the technologies that enable them to be as successful as possible. So we invest, and I invest, you know I, I have three things that are on the top of my list that that are you know every year we have an an executive summit, we all sit down, we talk about the most important things for us this year. I have three things that are most important to us this year. Number one is talent. And number two is lifeguarding, which is the deals that we're doing with the teams. And it's not just specifically with the teams, it's with our customers as well. What we've done is we've identified that, you know, being reactive is, is going to, we're going to end up dead. We want to be proactive in everything that we're doing with the teams and with the customer so that we're proactively communicating with them. Here's what you have in the next two weeks, next month. Here's what they have value for. We're integrating technology so that if somebody comes in and asks for a ticket, you can see how much you could sell the ticket for at that moment. So you can say, you know what, maybe I was going to give the ticket to Tony, the administrative assistant, but I can sell it for $800. Sorry, Tony, you're staying home on this one. I'm going to use that capital to go to a better event or to sponsor something else. And uh, just getting the word out over the next year, You know, we have our, our partner summit on October 13th. We've got some celebrity speakers we're about to announce that are going to talk about just the future of sponsorship, the future of an engagement with live events, and just that constant evolution. Because you know, if you asked me when I was 27, talking back to one of the questions you asked earlier, you know, would you want to work at the same place for 15 years? I'd say no, it'd be boring right? You'd assume you're doing the same thing for 15 years, but there's nothing the same about it. As as you all know, it's every year it changes completely. And you just have to constantly have... And that's why talent's always the number one answer. You've got to constantly have people that are pushing you, constantly have people that are on top of what... That are curious, that understand the technologies that are next, that are tied into the industry around them, and addressing and, and applying those things to make sure that you're staying ahead of the game. Because you know, I love, uh, I'm sure you guys watched the uh, Nick Saban and uh, Bill Belichick special on HBO a few years ago. Nick said something really fascinating that we talk about a lot here. Once you conquer the mountain, you become the mountain. And that's, that comes with a whole different responsibility.
0: Well, clearly a lot happening in and around Ticket Manager. We're going to be continuing to track that across all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Tony Knopf, their chief executive and co-founder, for spending this time with us. Always. Thank you so much for having me. That was great. Thank you. we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Tony Knopp again from Ticket Manager for spending that time with us. And shifting our attention now to the news of the week here, Seakeek, uh, this is a New York-based ticketing company, uh, works with uh, a number of teams on both sides of the Atlantic uh, on a number of ticketing initiatives, uh, also has a big uh, presence in the resale space. It's a company we've been talking about a lot, and they originally had a uh, proposed merger on the table with uh, with a SPAC. In fact, one of the more prominent SPACs, uh, Red Ball Acquisition Company uh, uh, Corporation. And this was one of the first big sports SPACs out there, led in part by uh, Jerry Cardinale from Redbird Capital and uh, Billy Bean from the Oakland A's and baseball. uh, They had a uh, $1.3 billion uh, merger potentially on the table, killed that deal earlier this year and The big question, as we discussed earlier, was what was going to happen to SeatGeek? There's still a business there. And what was going to be the path forward? Well, we've now got a pretty big answer to that question here, where they came out with uh, news of a $238 million Series E fundraising, valuing the company at a billion dollars, And like a lot of these fundraising announcements, it's not just the money, but who it's coming from. And what it is, is uh, an interesting collection of some existing investors, notably Excel, doubling down on the company and, and continuing to reinvest in that operation. But potentially, but also some uh, some new entities and uh, among the names coming in new to SeatGeek, Arcto Sports Partners. We talked about them a lot, uh, you know, buying uh, minority shares of a lot of different teams. And uh, they're coming in with Ryan Smith, most notably known as the uh, owner of the uh NBA's Utah Jazz and Artos and Ryan Smith also just separately did their own deal, but they're now coming in together to invest in SeatGeek. And so you put this all together, real show of faith in this company, despite everything that happened before with the SPAC situation.
1: It certainly is, Eric. And I think it's also to some degree a validation of the live event space overall and the rebound after the pandemic, because obviously that's a that's a critical piece of where SeatGeek plays. I think it's you know as you noted, interesting that they've really focused on some of the existing investors to take the lead, like Excel, which knows the company well, obviously yep. has confidence in it. I believe that Ryan Smith was originally going to be involved in the SPAC in some way, shape, or yep. form. So obviously he has been interested in SeatGeek and a proponent for a while, and then Arctos, you know, maybe is even the most intriguing of of, of these companies. They have been focused. Primarily on buying team stakes, but more recently have bought into companies that are part of the team ecosystem. And they seem to be increasing their focus or their level of investment on those types of companies. Uh, and this is really a good example of that.
0: Yeah. And you know, you sort of take all the drama around Red Bull and that potential situation before, you know, again, what they SeatGeek still has is a you know, a healthy business. And you know, they're not necessarily Ticketmaster, and they're not necessarily at that scale, but this is a company that had record level revenue in, in 2021 on pace to double that uh, in 2022, continuing to grow. And they've done so in large part because they've created a mobile first product and a mobile first ecosystem in which they may have been ahead of the market before, but the market is now fully caught up to where they're at. And again, they're they're continuing to get new team business on both sides of the Atlantic, doing a lot of activity in the Premier League, as well as the established stick and ball sports and a number of the other events uh, here in North America. And continuing to drive business, and so you, again, you sort of take uh you know some of that other drama out of the equation here. There's a, there's a real business here, so to a certain extent, really not surprising that at least some of the existing investors, in whatever shape or form here, would want to continue to to support this entity.
1: They do have some momentum, Eric, in terms of some of those deals that they've done recently with some of the sports teams, both in the U.S. and overseas. They have evolved into a primary ticketing company whereas maybe when they started they were more focused on being a, a referral to secondary. secondary market. And now they're really competing very aggressively in the primary market you know but the challenge with doing that is sometimes you do need capital to to buy rights or to do upfront deals whether you're doing deals with the calves or the nets or the commanders or some of the other teams they have deals with so they're they're in in a way going head to head with ticketmaster on some of those deals seatgeek at least as of the last you know full year was still losing money so i think this capital is important in terms of uh getting getting them to break even, also having, you know,
0: dry powder to do more rights deals, which I think are a big part of, of where they're going on, on a go forward basis. Yeah. And that dry powder and the more deals, that's a really important point. Because again, you look at the, uh, the rest of that ticketing landscape, uh, you know, we talked about this in prior weeks where, you know, Vivid Seats, they've gone public, they've, you know, they've kind of uh, put their situation together and they're really kind of loaded for bear out in the market. And we've talked a lot about Live Nation and Ticketmaster, and they just renewed Michael Rapino's deal. Yeah. and they're obviously enjoying the fruits of uh, the whole rebound of the live event market. And uh, they're very aggressively going after new business as well. So this is going to continue to be a really, really hot segment of the industry. and having resources and marshaling resources, you know for this really intense competition is going to be very important.
1: Yeah, it has been a land of the Giants kind of business where you do have the big players, Eric, that you discussed, also StubHub. Yep. And so having resources uh, is critical for these rights deals. Also having resources for potential M&A deals, for tuck-in acquisitions, because a lot of innovation is, is being done by some of the smaller players in the space. That's also a critical piece. And now StubHub, I'm sorry, now, uh, now, now SeatGeek has has the capital to do that as well. Whereas, you know, vivid seats not only has the capital, but has the kind of liquid public share. So again, the the competition among three or four major players in this space is going to continue. But SeatGeek is now kind of one of those, really firmly establishing yeah. itself as one of those in the in the big leagues. And I think that's good news for them.
0: Well, much more to come on that front uh, as the uh, months ensue here, but shifting our attention from the world of ticketing to one of Italian soccer. And we've got a very interesting deal. uh, Speaking of Redbird Capital, they have closed on their acquisition of Serie A power AC Milan. This is one of the great brands of not only uh, Italian football, but European football and global football overall. They've had some hard times, but uh, have been on a competitive rebound and uh, rose back to their first Serie A title last year for the first time in 11 years. Jerry Cardinale and, uh, and Redbird Capital, they have closed on their acquisition of the club. And, and what has been sort of interesting as this deal is concluded is the folks that they've brought in to assist them as part of this. And uh, the New York Yankees, through their Yankee Global Enterprises, they've come in as a minority partner here. The Major League Baseball uh, power, of course, and they have now added to their soccer portfolio in a way that uh, adds to their existing uh, partnership with City Football Group for the defense defending MLS champions, NYCFC. Uh, you've also got Main Street Advisors coming in uh, as a minority partner. And this is a uh, California-based investment firm and whose uh, backers include LeBron James, the uh, global basketball superstar, uh, music industry icon Jimmy Iovine, among others, and another um, as a d- quick disclosure here, another uh, minority partner that's come into uh, AC Milan here with Redbird Capital is uh, Ricardo Silva, who we must note is the uh, – through Silva International Investments is the parent company of sport business. But sort of pulling back here and looking at this overall here, this is uh, you know another situation where um, – The folks involved here think they can really take AC Milan to another place. And already we're seeing integrations come forth where, uh, you know, immediately after the closing of the deal, we've got plans afoot to have uh, AC Milan match replays on the Yes Network, the RSN home of the Yankees a number of other marketing collaborations, potential games at Yankee Stadium. Uh, there's a number of things afoot here to try to make one plus one equal 11 or 21 or something that uh, there's a lot of interest in in the global game here. And uh, there's uh, a number of uh, big time entities here who think they can really make it happen.
1: There are those strategic opportunities, Eric, which I'm sure will be deployed. But we start with, I think, the relationship piece of this, which I, I find interesting, which is Redbird and Jerry were involved or Jerry was with the Yankees and the Yes Network. Yep. So that close relationship already exists. And, and then, they are, they are in on the board of Le- and
0: they are partners of that RSN.
1: Yep. And then if you think about Main Street, one of their big clients is LeBron James. And, you know, obviously LeBron is involved in Fenway, which Redbird is involved in. So you could see how these relationships may have started the dialogue when you have confidence in, in kind of other co-investors. I do agree that there's, as we discussed, some level of synergies and, and, and strategic opportunities. But the Yankees are pretty judicious about what they get involved in. They they don't seem to be involved in 20 or 30 things. They seem right. to be focused on a few things, like NYCFC, as you mentioned. So I do think it's notable well, that they saw this. Yeah, that they saw this as important enough to get involved. We don't know how much money they put in specifically, but certainly putting their brand on this and partnering with Jerry. And who knows if we'll see friendlies in Yankee Stadium or other things down the road. But I do think that's notable and and a step that's important for them.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And and what, uh, you know, Randy Levine and and some of the operating team at the Yankees, uh, you know, working for the Steinbrenner family that owns the club and Yankee Global Enterprises, I think that's a really great point that they have indeed been Very judicious, very careful about where that brand goes. That 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 Yankee brand, not only the the on field success that fuels that, but also that selectivity that uh, they're not going to get involved with every deal that you know. Because obviously they're having things thrown at them, you know, potential opportunities every day. But you look at what that Yankee Global Enterprise business. You know, you've got the soccer situation with City Football Group. You've got Legends. You've got, uh, you know, this this now newly renamed bad boy mowers pinstripe bowl that happened, the college football event that happens every year at the stadium. But it's just been a few things here, very targeted, large scale things that they really feel like they can grow. But I think that's a great point that, uh, you know, this is not every opportunity that comes around the corner here, but this is one of them that they really feel like they can help Jerry and Main Street take to a whole other level.
1: And on the Main Street side, Eric, you know, Main Street has been a, a around for quite a while. They, they advise athletes to people like uh, in the entertainment space, like Arnold Schwarzenegger are, are big clients. And they've worked with these entertainers and athletes to help them build their business empires. But a couple of months ago, there was an announcement that Main Street had raised $1.1 billion to make more principal investments in the sports world as a firm. And this may be one of the first of those that they are making. So the question will be going forward, does Main Street become an even more active investor in sports properties akin to Arctos and some of the others, Bruin, some of the other ones that are out there, not just through advising its athletes, but through its own funding. And again, this may be the start of a trend there
0: oh yeah and and you look at uh the kinds of things that they're already involved with and 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 their team led by Paul Walker they've got connections to everybody and you know very deeply connected with uh, you know a lot of different power brokers of sports and entertainment and uh you know probably able to sort of move perhaps with a nimbleness that some of the other large agencies and some of the other entities out there in la you know maybe they can sort of be a little bit more opportunistic and again using that, you know, incredible Rolodex that they've got and that, you know, Paul and his team have have put together there that, you know, again, this is probably a name we're going to be talking a lot about in the ensuing months.
1: And I think, you know, how they will help AC Milan beyond, uh, again, obviously the capital, how they will involve some of the talent, some of the entertainment elements, some of their relationships in the U.S., that will be intriguing to see because I don't, I mean, again, with the Yankees, there's some obvious, synergies, which which you highlighted. I think with some of these athletes and entertainers, there may be some creative ideas that they have in terms of merging soccer and entertainment or leveraging the power of some of these celebrities, but uh, it will NBA be interesting to see in how that line. plays out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out.
0: Well, much more to come on that front, but uh, shifting our attention now to college football. We talked about this on multiple occasions earlier in the year that uh, the college football playoff, one of the uh, big events across the entire North American sports landscape, expansion beyond the current fourteen team format, had been left for dead for the duration of the uh, current rights deal with ESPN, which runs through the 25-26 season. That had looked like we were going to be looking at status quo for another four seasons, you know, but now six months later or so here, the notion of uh, meaningful, not just expansion, but meaningful expansion back on the table. And as we're taping this podcast, there is a meeting afoot of the uh, virtual meeting of the uh, CFP Board of Managers, comprised of uh, university presidents from across the uh, Football Bowl subdivision conferences, as well as Notre Dame, Uh, they're going to be meeting and they're going to be discussing and potentially voting on a new format that would bring the CFP up to 12 teams and and maybe even further expansion down the line to something like 16. But there's a lot of energy and momentum now around this 12-team format that's been discussed at length internally for the past two years and we could be looking at uh you know just in the coming days here a meaningful shift as soon as 2024 to one of, again one of the key events across the entire north american uh, landscape and this is you know just to note one of the things that really draws nfl type numbers there's not a lot of them out there besides the nfl itself but CFP title game in January, you know, drew 20, a domestic television audience of 22 million people. This is, you know, you don't get this kind of numbers with a lot of other entities. And, you know, from my read, it just looks like you look at the Big Ten deal and the kinds of things that have been happening across the collegiate rights space. There's just too much money on the table here to stay at four teams.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, also the maxim now, Eric, is that, you know, you can either act or you can react. And I think, you know, Kevin Warren has shown, look, I'm going to go out there and expand my conference. And if you're going to Sit on your hands and do nothing. You know you, you may not do as well as I do, and the similar thing has played out in NIL. the The schools and the in the and the parties that have been aggressive, uh, at least to date, seem to be rewarded. So again, whether you're the CFP or any other constituent in the space, I think there's more of an imperative to say, listen, we got to get moving now. I mean, George K is trying to do that with his TV deal, not waiting till it yeah, expires, but but getting out in front of it. The Pac-12. So I think across the industry, there's now a Feeling like, well, we just can't sit on our hands and wait. If there's an opportunity, we've got to go seize it. Otherwise, we're going to be facing some other situation where now we've got to react to somebody else's initiative. So I I think it's part of that trend that we're seeing.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point. And then there's been some internal sort of turbulence on this issue that the conference commissioners that, you know, even though you you cite a number of them and they in their own respective universes have been proactive on a number of things, it's been the university presidents now that appear to be sort of driving some of this, you know, renewed impetus of change specifically around the CFP. And and they're looking at the Conference commissioners, and it's like, come on, guys, let's get going here. That you know, these university presidents, they they have their own boards they have to have answer to, and and again, you're looking at the you know how rapidly and how dramatically things are changing across the space. You know, again, it's a great point that you need to that you brought up here that uh, you know, fortune favors the bold here, and that this is not a time for reticence and. You know, again, what was really sort of driving a lot of this renewed momentum is the university presidents looking at these uh, conference commissioners and athletic directors and just not being happy with the pace of action.
1: Yeah, Eric, as I understand it, there's a meeting we're, we're recording on a Friday. As I understand it, there's a meeting today of the 12 key presidents and commissioners. Yep. Uh, or, I'm sorry, presidents and chancellors who yep. are going to, I guess, need to vote unanimously in order to expand the, the, the CFP and, right then, yep. and then the matter will go to the conference commissioners to sort through the details and the formats and some of the other issues. So I don't know how hard it is to get a unanimous vote with a constituency so uh, with, with so many different interests. But it seems like there, there may be a prospect of that happening. And if so, we're going to see some rapid action coming out of that in terms of making the CFP expansion happen. So again, I, hope, I think it'd be great
0: for college sports, but still hurdles ahead. Uh, so many hurdles, because, again, you have all of these other, you know, and, and we're sort of talking about this in broad strokes, and we all agree that this is going to be a massive thing, you know, we're again, right up there, you know, with, uh, you know, an NFL regular season and early playoffs in terms of potential audience and, you know, massive dollars in terms of media rights. But there are so many logistical issues to sort through in terms of, you know, how the qualifying works, how the scheduling works, you know, how this sort of comports with student athlete experience and the like, uh, you know, again, you mentioned all the myriad list, logistical issues that have to be sorted through, and there there are a great many of them. And you know, again, even if you get to this sort of conceptual agreement that hey, twelve is where we need to go, and we're leaving too much money on the table, this has to happen. Even if you agree on that, actually making it happen and making it work across the country, across all of these different entities, that's a whole other complication that has to be resolved.
1: There are a broad set of things that we might call logistics which have to do with scheduling or even how do you fit this within the context of the current ESPN agreement. And Again, those things can be worked out. I think the part of logistics that gets tricky is really about the qualifying. How many teams come from different conferences, who gets to qualify that that ends up getting to be a like, well, does the SEC get four? Does a Big Ten get 14? Those are the things that get contentious because it has to do with how well your your conference is going to be represented in this thing. And those tend to be,
0: as I say, dicey issues in terms of the way that that qualifying is set up. Yeah. And it's important to remember that even if we go from four to twelve The number 13, number 14 team that gets left out. There's still there's still going to be great many complaints and basketball is an instructive lesson on this that as we've gone over the years to a 64 team tournament for march Madness and now 68 with the with the first four there are still a great many complaints about who gets left out and as the alum of a mid-major here you know it's a, if school is you know often right at that cut line here i you know i live and die this every spring and uh this is not going to resolve the the complaints either from family fans or alums or the schools themselves that, you know, you could you could go to you could go to 200 teams and there's still going to be complaints as to who's in the tournament or not in the tournament.
1: There certainly will. But the positive side of that, I guess, Eric, as we've talked about before, is while there may be 12 teams qualifying, there may be 20 to 25 teams that are still in the hunt going down to the last week or two
0: of the season. So that really energizes the fan bases. And I think that's a good thing. Well, much more to come on that front. uh, But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a quick look uh, elsewhere in the space and, and see what is catching our eye moving ahead here. And Chris, I will start with you. Yeah, I'm
1: looking at a personnel move that caught my eye this week, Eric, which was Ed Hartman, who was a senior executive at Fox basically running the day-to-day business of the USFL, uh, moving over to PointsBet to become the chief strategy officer there. That is, again, intriguing to me on two levels. One is, what does that mean for the USFL in terms of Filling Ed's spot, which you know they they had a great first year, but there's a lot of work left to do. And you know, does this set them back, or how you know they have adequate replacements for Ed? But then on the points bet side, it's a competitive market in the U.S., but points bet seems intent on you know fighting the fight and bringing in Ed may indicate they want to you know ramp up some of the deal making and looking at other kind of strategic initiatives. So on both fronts, I'm interested to see how his his involvement or lack thereof uh, plays out.
0: Yeah, this is a brand really interesting uh to me and one bearing watching in the space here that they've, you know, done a big deal with NBC and they're getting uh, you know, a lot of good exposure you know, on things like Sunday night football and getting that brand out there in front of consumers, uh, you know, here in the in the United States. But uh in terms of market share, they've got a long way to go. They're way behind in any meaningful state that they're operating beyond behind the likes of FanDuel and DraftKings and, and Caesars and the like. And they've got a long way to go here. And so to the extent that people like Ed could try to, you know, change that narrative and improve the fortunes of the company, it's going to be really interesting to see.
1: Yeah, they they do have a, a long way to go. On the other hand, you know, from many Folks' perspective, we're still kind of in the early innings yep. of the the betting wars, and there's still California and Texas and others, and then there's online casino that may come after that. Uh, but as you know, uh, Eric, uh, PointsBet recently raised money from Susquehanna, yeah, uh, and you know they they appear to be in it uh, to win it. So we'll we'll see again how, how it plays out.
0: And from my perspective, I'm keeping my eye on Major League Baseball's Atlanta Braves. These are the defending uh, World Series champions from last year. And they're just continuing to crush it both on and off the field. As we're taping this, they're in the top wild card spot uh, in the National League, just a few uh, games behind the uh, uh, New York Mets in the uh, NL East division, uh, essentially a lock to make the uh, playoffs for the fifth straight year. And then from a business side, um, Tonight at uh, Truist Park, they're going to be setting a new uh, facility attendance record. Uh, The stadium opened in 2017. We've obviously gone through the uh, challenges of COVID-19, but uh, uh, they're going to be setting a a new uh, stadium home attendance record with still a month to go in the uh, regular season on pace to go over $3 for the first time, and the team has done that since the year 2000. And Liberty Media, uh, the parent company, every quarter just continues to – Sing the Braves' praises that they are continuing to grow revenue, continuing to grow operating income here. And, you know, this is a team that is not LA, not New York. This is not the Yankees, the Dodgers, but uh, they've, uh, you know, really created something for themselves here. They've sort of built a whole other mini city and extension to downtown Atlanta itself with this new uh, Truist Park and the Battery uh, up near Smyrna, Georgia. Up the road from downtown. And uh, they're just, uh, you know, really proving themselves to be a model organization in a lot of ways, both on and off the field.
1: They have become an important part of the community. Again, this hasn't happened overnight. They've had. Decades of uh, of work on that, and for the most part, decades of pretty good performance on the field too, yep. overall, which which I think helps. But I think now they are really kind of a cornerstone of that community, and it, it is a, a tribute to the people who have been involved in managing the club. And I'm sure a lot of other clubs around the country would like to have that kind of uh, success and, uh, and and are modeling
0: after them to some degree. And, uh, you know, again, they're they're still the defending champions until someone beats them and proves otherwise here. So a force to be watched here as we uh, move towards the rest of the regular season and into playoffs in October. That's going to wrap up another episode of uh, Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.